You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We're recording this episode on Thursday the 14th of December. And this week we'll chat about the cost of living and whether homeowners can expect any help from the banks. We'll look at a new report on the state of Sweden's democracy. We'll see how Swedish schoolgoers are faring in a major international ranking. We'll talk about how unaccompanied child refugees have integrated in Sweden. We'll meet the former Syrian banker who set up a successful hummus bar in Malmö after his job applications went unanswered. We'll examine why the government wants to measure the economic effects of migration. We'll discuss what to expect from plans for a compulsory introductory course for newcomers to Sweden. And we'll finish up with a chat about the Nobel Prize ceremony and this week's St. Lucia celebrations. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and I'm joined today here in Stockholm by James Savage. And we have Emma Lovegrain in Malmö. How are things with you? Good. Good. How are you, Paul? I'm very well. Thanks for asking, Emma. Let's start with the cost of living. And one thing I should say is that just before we started recording here, we saw that inflation figures have gone down more than expected, which will uh, impact interest rates going forward, presumably. Uh, One article that I know has generated a lot of interest among readers of The Local recently was a roundup of which banks have cut interest rates on mortgages after the Swedish Central Bank decided recently not to to increase its key rate for the first time since February 2022. We'll link to the article in the episode notes for anyone who wants to dig into the numbers there. But Emma, what would you say are the most important things to be aware of? Well, I just bought a new house, so I consider myself somewhat of a mortgage Mm -hmm. expert. So banks are mainly starting to lower interest rates on fixed term mortgages. So that's important to know, whereas most of the variable rates are staying the same for now. We do generally expect interest rates to go down in the next year. So what the banks are trying to do at the moment is they're trying to lock you in on a fixed-term mortgage before the rates drop too much. So at the moment, fixed-term mortgages are cheaper than variable ones, but that isn't always the case. Mm. So what this means is that homeowners who are up to renew their mortgage now, they can get a cheaper deal by signing up to a fixed-term. But in the long run... It might get more expensive because even if interest rates drop, you've then committed yourself to paying a certain amount. At the same time, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So with fixed term mortgages, at least you have the benefit of knowing what you're going to get. Yeah. But one of the most important things that I would say is not to take the mortgage rate listed on the bank's website at face value. 
there are often ways of getting discounts on the rate. For example, by shopping around between various banks. Mm -hmm. Or if your employer does its banking with a certain bank, they might offer a discount because of that. Or if you're a member of a trade union, a lot of unions have deals with certain banks to offer discounts to their members. So I'd always advise you to visit a bank in person also and negotiate your mortgage face to face. Really good advice there. And congratulations on buying a new house. Thank you. So just after the government came to power with the support of the far-right Sweden Democrats last year, we had an interview here on the podcast with John Stauffer, a human rights expert with Civil Rights Defenders, in which he expressed concern about the direction the right-wing coalition was taking. Now, this week, Civil Rights Defenders published a new report looking back at Sweden's first year under the TIDA agreement, a sort of roadmap for the government's collaboration with the Sweden Democrats. James, can you tell us a bit about what's in their report? Are they still worried about Sweden backsliding on democracy? Yeah, yeah, they are. It's quite bleak, this report. It it points to a number of measures that they say threaten fundamental freedoms and in Mm. the long run, democracy. One of the things that they point to is this policy of visitation zones, stop and search zones. They point to the threats to deport or evict entire families if a child in the family commits a crime, which they say is collective punishment and therefore, you know, fundamentally not in line with democratic values. And they talk about threats to withdraw funding to organisations which criticise the government. I mean, mm. a lot of these things they're talking about here are things that haven't actually been done yet, but that the government has talked about or the governing parties have threatened in their, in their rhetoric. They also criticise the proposed informal law under which public employees may be forced to report anyone they suspect of living in the country illegally. Yeah, I'd say they reserve their starkest criticism for the tone of the political debate, which they say scapegoats vulnerable groups in society. So this, they say, could be the first step in a process of what they call autocratization. So that's the opposite of democratization. Yeah. And reminiscent, they say, of developments in places like Hungary. So it's pretty grim. But despite this, and you know, this this sort of comes at the end, but it's actually quite it's it's quite important. They say that Sweden's democracy remains strong, that vigilance is needed, but fundamentally Sweden's democracy remains strong. I think, you know, when looking at this report, remember that their their job is to point out the problems. Yeah. And that is very much what they do. And that is the headline. But they're not saying that Sweden has become Hungary. No. We're not we're not in that kind of situation. Fundamentally it's a it's it's a strong and functioning democracy, but with some worrying signals, I think. Okay. Thanks for that roundup. And we'll put a link in the notes to the previous episode featuring civil rights defenders and to our latest article on this. Let's turn to schools now. So last week saw the publication of the PISA rankings that measure the proficiency of 15-year-olds all over the world in mathematics, science and reading. What are the results telling us about the state of education in Sweden? So Sweden's performance in science stayed mostly the same, but its performance in reading and mathematics dropped quite a bit. There are several layers to all of this. So the Swedish Education Authority's defence, it was basically that, well, it's not Sweden, it's everyone, Mm. which I'm not sure makes it better. But it is true. A lot of other similar countries also had a worse score than in the last ranking from 2018. And it's not all bad news. Sweden is still above the OECD average. But one of the reasons for the decline is pretty obvious. 
It's the COVID pandemic. Yeah. We know that Sweden did keep its schools open much more than a lot of countries, but of course schools were still affected. So it's it's perhaps not surprising that Swedish education bosses focused a lot on the pandemic when they tried to defend the poor performance. But but as as Pisa reps pointed out, that's not the whole story. There are structural problems in the Swedish education system that have to be tackled. Some of the things that the head of PISA pointed out were a lack of discipline, that students aren't engaged, that they're distracted by their mobile phones, and that they don't have a strong bond with the teachers. But maybe the most worrying thing is actually the the inequality. There are huge gaps between kids from socioeconomically advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds. Especially in reading, there are huge gaps between girls and boys. And there are huge gaps between kids whose parents were born in Sweden and those with foreign-born parents, even when you remove socioeconomic factors. Mm. So for some reason, the Swedish school system is not helping children from an immigrant background reach their full potential. And if any listeners who have children in school here in Sweden have any thoughts about what's missing based on your experience and, and how that gap can be closed, I'd be, I'd be super interested in hearing those thoughts. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Emma. We'll focus on immigration a bit now, starting with numbers from Statistics Sweden showing that the vast majority of the 35,000 or so unaccompanied child refugees who came to Sweden in 2015 now have jobs and in fact have a higher employment rate than people of the same age who were born in Sweden. On the face of it, this sounds like a success story, but there's a lot going on behind the numbers, isn't there, James? Can you briefly run us through what these young men, mostly young men from Afghanistan, are telling us about what life in Sweden has been like for them since their arrival here eight years ago? I think one of the first things to say about this group of young men is that they were quite a controversial group when they came to Sweden. Yeah. They were accused by many people of lying about their age to get asylum because mm. obviously if if you're a minor then it's somewhat easier to get asylum mm. and they were often referred to disparagingly as hregbarn or bearded children they were also sometimes blamed for harassing or assaulting women at uh, music festivals for mm. example so you know they started their time in Sweden with with a you know difficult reputation i guess mm. in many cases their asylum claims were rejected But a special and controversial law was passed that let them finish secondary school and stay in the country anyway if they got a job job within six months of finishing. This was called gymnasialagen or gymnasium law. Mm. Now, six years later, 82% of those born in 1999, which was the most common age for for this group of people, were in work. And 70% of them earn at least 222,900 kroner which is a sort of a, a, some sort of average. And that's better than Swedes their age. The most common profession was health, elderly and social care. Now, very few of them were studying, but that's not surprising because the gymnasium law prohibited them from studying if they wanted to stay in Sweden. They had to get a job straight after school. But that doesn't mean that they won't start studying further down the line. So all in all, I think you could say that this group of young men has done a lot better than a lot of people would have expected, given the circumstances of their arrival in Sweden and their upbringing. Really interesting. Thanks for that, Jake. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Another story we had on the site this week was uh, a write-up of a chat Becky had with Ibrahim Idris, a one-time banking professional from Syria who moved to Sweden and ended up setting up a successful restaurant in Malmö. But the road to his hummus bar was long and winding and we'll listen to him now as he explains how he tried to get a job in the finance sector in Stockholm. I was applying for a lot of jobs. And I was so happy because, you know, after 15 years or 17 years of experience, when you apply for jobs, you know exactly if you fit or you don't fit. You know if this is something that you can contribute to or do. Or what. And I got so excited. I got so happy because like, oh my gosh, this is a perfect fit. I was just uh, very naive, I would say, expecting calls. I got super excited and I was like, oh my gosh. And I was, okay, this week, today, tomorrow, and then six months passed. And then I haven't even got a single call. That was Ibrahim Idris. And I was reminded when listening to him of something last week's guest, Maria Fogas from Schulberg, said that the finance sector is among the most conservative and difficult to break into for immigrants in Sweden. And just this week, the Finansleve news site published an expose alleging rampant discrimination against foreign-born applicants in Sweden's finance sector. Emma, can you fill us in on how Ibrahim eventually ended up moving down to Malmö and setting up his own business? So after having lived in Stockholm for a bit, he he moved to Malmö, which he felt was a much more sociable city. And that improved his social life, but he was still struggling professionally. He had been thinking about setting up a restaurant when he retired, just like a lot of us do. Like, oh, when I retire, I'll set up a cafe or a restaurant or a little cute bookshop. But then he thought, well, I mean, why not just do it now since I'm not getting any jobs anyway? So he set up this hummus bar because he used to make hummus for his friends. And he also thought that there was a gap in the market in Malmö for this kind of thing. And he called it Humusen which is a play on the common Swedish son surnames, like Andersson and Svensson, which was partly because he he deliberately wanted to target Swedes as well as other immigrants, partly because he believed that his his foreign name was the main reason that his job hunt was unsuccessful. Right. So the name is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of Swedifying the Middle East and cuisine, but it also has a serious undertone. He applied for a loan to set it up, And uh, thanks to his career in finance, he of course knew exactly how to write the application to make the banks bite. Mm. And uh, it's been really successful. He's been running the place for a few years and he's he's expanding and he he even managed to employ his parents and get them over to Sweden on work permits. Mm. 
So that's that's really great for him. I mean, obviously, it's not something everyone is able to do. And it does tell a kind of broader story about just how tough the job market is to break into, even for a lot of very, very skilled foreigners. Definitely. And I recommend listeners read the article, which you can find in the episode notes. In migration-related news this week, the government and the Sweden Democrats have called for an inquiry to look into the economic net effects of migration to Sweden in modern times. What's the thinking behind this? Well, the inquiry, as you might expect, is very much the Sweden Democrats' idea. And I think you don't even really need to read between the lines to understand that they expect it to conclude that migration has been a net cost to Sweden. The Sweden Democrats did their own sort of back of a napkin calculation a year or two ago and concluded that migration had cost 1.397 billion kroner over 12 years Mm. net. So now this new calculation will be done by the much more august National Institute of Economic Research. Right. So it's an official body and it will weigh in effects like tax income on the one hand and welfare payments on the other. And the Sweden Democrats said they also expected factors like the cost of accepting refugees and the cost of gang crime to be included here. Now, to the extent to which that will actually happen and how you would attribute that to immigration is, you know, that's obviously a much more complicated and who knows how it will end up being done. But that's what the Sweden Democrats would like to happen. But obviously, this is being done by a uh, by a professional and statutory body, so they will have to follow certain guidelines to, in order for it to be legitimate. But yeah, you can see exactly what the Sweden Democrats expect this to conclude. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. It will also be interesting because they're going to break down this by country of origin. So you'll expect it to conclude that certain groups of immigrants cost more net, and certain groups of immigrants cost less or perhaps even are a net asset to mm. Sweden. And that's obviously something that's quite in line with what's, how the Sweden Democrats view immigration. Seems like quite a controversial thing to do to break it down by country of origin. It, it, of course, it's a very controversial thing to do. Like I was saying, it's very much in line with how the Sweden Democrats view immigration and view it overall as a, as a net cost and that some groups are perhaps more of a cost than others. And that's something that the Sweden Democrats like to emphasise. Yeah. And they'll presumably look at asylum immigration versus labour force migration, for example. By breaking it down by country of, uh, by country of origin, that's, that, that will inevitably be one of the conclusions that will be, that will be drawn. And so yeah. you would expect, for instance, perhaps Americans to be net contributors mm. and for other groups that come mostly from countries where, where people claim, um, from, from which people claim asylum to be a net cost. At least that's, I imagine, what the, what the Sweden Democrats are expecting it to show. We shall see. Yeah. And the government also launched an inquiry this week to propose the creation of a compulsory new course for immigrants arriving in Sweden. What can you tell us about this, Emma? There's already an optional course for newly arrived immigrants in Sweden, which is um, designed to make it easier for them to enter the labour market. Mm -hmm. And it provides information on human rights, uh, basic democratic values and how society is organised. It's this course that the government thinks needs to be made compulsory and also more consistent across various municipalities. So they also wanted to cover new topics, such as the role of state authorities in society, the principles of the rule of law, the possibilities for democratic participation and the right to freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And uh, they wanted to have a greater focus on equality, women's and children's rights 
including honour-based violence and fundamental Swedish values. It's not really clear who will have to take this course. Uh, Johan Persson, who's the labour market minister, he referred to new arrivals, by which people usually mean asylum seekers. And people who move to Sweden on work permits or on, for example, a Sambo visa, they're not currently eligible for the current optional course. So they might not need to take the new course either. But this is one of the things that the inquiry will look into. And Persson did say that his vision was for all immigrants to take the course. Uh, we'll see how well it works in terms of integration. Like They say it's to help people break into the labour market, but I doubt it was because of a lack of knowledge about Sweden that Ibrahim, who founded the Humisbar, couldn't get a job despite applying for 2,000 jobs with an extremely qualified CV. So another thing that happened this week was the Nobel Prize ceremony, which took place at Stockholm City Hall on Sunday. Did any of you follow it? I was off for a lot of last week looking after a sick kid, so I actually forgot that it was on. <laughs> did you Did you watch it, James? Did you follow it on? I did. And I... Uh... I watched a lot more of it than I usually do. I don't really know why, but I, I, I tend to find it's, it's the ultimate slow TV because it goes on for <laughs> hours and hours and hours. A lot of it is the same every year. And the bits where there's some action is people talking about stuff that sometimes is completely impenetrable because it's, you know, it's physics and chemistry and, 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 and quite, quite complicated. Well, what can you, what can you tell us, Sam? I mean, who were some of the laureates and what were the, the main talking points? So I think there were a few sort of really interesting laureates. The winners of the medicine prize won it for their, their discoveries connected to mRNA, which mm. And their discoveries are really important in, in the development of vaccines for COVID and are going to be you know, really important in, va- in developing vaccines for, for lots of other things as yep. well. So that was, a, that was really interesting. They, and, and it felt like they sort of got perhaps even a slightly bigger round of applause than some of the others. Mm. There was also a really interesting winner of the Economics Prize who won it for discoveries of her research connected to equality in the in, in the labour market, gender equality in the labour market. She gave a really interesting speech, I thought. She, and then, of course, there was the uh, the winner of the physics prize who won it for something I didn't really understand. But, <laughs> <laughs> but who was, but who was, uh, she was notable for us, obviously, for a lot of us watching because she was French, but um, living in Sweden and, and researching at Lund University. Mm. So she was able, she was able to speak in, in Swedish and, and, and was, was super charming. She's called uh, Anne Lullier. So I, I thought it was, I think the, the Nobel Prize is always quite moving. And, and the banquet at City Hall, well, like I say, it is slow TV. It's watching people eat dinner. It's so weird. It's like the original mukbang, isn't it? That trend when you watch YouTube videos of people eating. Yeah. I'm way too old to understand that kind of thing. <laughs> I only know because Emma told me one time before. <laughs> but it, I suppose it's sort of like, if you if you want to connect it to something historical, it's like this old, uh, you used to have these things called um, public bespeesning, I think, in, in Swedish. It's like, it was literally where monarchs would eat dinners and people would be invited mm. to watch them eat. And it was sort of a, a ceremonial thing that you would have at sort of Versailles and as lots of things that was copied around courts around Europe. This feels like the last example of public bespeesning, of, 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 of public dinners. And it is a little weird. You're watching people, you know, they're sitting there in their tiaras and their glad rags. And, you know, the TV cameras are sort of speculating on what they might be talking about because <laughs> you can't hear them. Um, it's, it, but I don't know. I, after, after 20 years in Sweden, I think I've gone native to the extent that I actually find this moderately entertaining. <laughs> 
It's funny that in Sweden, the banquet is almost a bigger event than the announcement of the actual awards. Yeah, because, I mean, I think like everybody else, I think Swedes just find that, you know, often the science is quite impenetrable. They, they, you know, I think some of them really try and make an effort to concentrate and understand a little bit of it, but it is often quite technical. But the banquet, everyone can get behind because, you know, it's jewels and it's bling. And it's-, it's one of those things you tell your children, like when you in English would say something like, oh, can't take you anywhere. Like you'd say to your children, well, you'll never get invited to the Nobel banquet with manners like that at the dinner table. Exactly. <laughs> but also one of, the th- one of the things I enjoy about it now is like, I've been in Sweden long enough that if I look hard enough, I'll see someone I recognise there. So, or, you know, someone I know. <laughs> As I, I did have a friend, this, this, I had two friends this year who were waiting tables at the banquet and then a couple of other people I know who were actually sitting at the tables, which was fun. And it's always on the 10th of December, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And it, which puts it just a few days before the sort of Sancta Lucia celebrations, which were last night, we're recording this on Thursday. Did you mark Lucia in any way? I got up and watched SVT's Lucia on the telly. And I usually do that. I do that every year, but I usually do it with a saffron bun, but we'd eaten all the saffron buns. <laughs> so I just watched it on the telly. How about you, Emma? I got saffron buns from my local bakery, which I shouldn't have because they were twice the price of the ones I usually get from the petrol station. (laughs) Oh, but I'm sure the bakery ones were nicer than the ones from the petrol station. Well, they were about the same, really. There's only so much you can do to make saffron buns better. I would recommend if anyone if anyone is tempted, and you're supposed to eat the lusicata, which are the ones that are in the figure of eight with the little raisins in, but I think they're a bit dry. But if you get the ones where they're done in the shape of a cinnamon bun with a bit of marzipan in. Mm. It's like the same kind of flavour, but just moist and yummy. So if you haven't had your bun ration yet, I certainly recommend. It's cheating, but it is nicer. But none of you dressed up as in your sort of Lucia (laughs) garments or anything now? Next year at the Stockholm office, we'll have a Lucia procession. Mm. I went to one last night. There was one in my in my neighbourhood with a horse and everything. There was a Lucia on a horse, and all on the na- all the neighbours came out and and marched around the neighbourhood. Yeah, it was fantastic. No, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah, with candles in her hair, Lucia the the candles in her hair and the whole thing. But there was a like a children's choir walking behind the horse, singing all the Lucia songs. Oh wow, mm, it was really sweet. One thing I discovered yesterday about Lucia is like it at Lucia. There are now sort of two or three kinds of characters. You've got Lucia, you've got the Prangossar, uh, which are the star boys, the star boys which, who wear the pointy hats. And then you've got, I think you've got Peppercock's Gubber as well, which is like gingerbread boys, which gingerbread men, which I don't understand. I read the other day that they used to be a character in Lucia that, they, that they've done away with since the 50s. And he was called Judas Medpungen. What? Judas with the sack. Pungin is also a sort of like a, a, a gentleman's <laughs> a gentleman's sack. Um, although I don't think it's, me, it's meant as that kind of sack. <laughs> Judas with the sack, Judas Pungin, used to follow the Lucia, the Lucia parade and cause havoc and what? poke sticks with uh, people and, and things. Yeah, and apparently they, they, they got rid of Judas Pungin in, in the 50s. I think we need to bring back Judas Pungin. I think it sounds like very fun. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know where to go from there. (laughs) 
that's all for this week please share the podcast with a friend if you think they'd enjoy it or leave a review wherever you listen we're really grateful for all your help in getting the word out our panelists today were emma lovegrain and james savage our sound engineer is reese edwards i'm paul amani and we'll be back again next week with a new episode of sweden in focus until then take care That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.